Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We're back after a brief summer break, our own production hiatus, deep cleaned and ready for another show. Face masks in place and still at least a metre away from our guests and you, dear listener. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Helium Partners Media and Acquisitions Advisor Tom Mannering about the deal he recently brokered which saw Sony acquire UK Indie 11, producers of hit Netflix series Sex Education. Kevin Levy, Executive Vice President of Program Planning, Scheduling and Acquisitions at the CW, details the US network's pandemic response. And Patrick Wimp, creator of web series Brothers from the Suburbs, discusses Hollywood's response to the Black Lives Matter movement. Tom Mannering is partner at media and acquisition specialist Helium Partners, a firm he joined last year after stints as MD of About Corporate Finance and Ingenious Corporate Finance. He's advised on more than 30 transactions, including the sale of Mammoth Screen to ITV, Neil Street and New Pictures to All3 Media, Love Productions to Sky and Raw TV to Discovery. Earlier this month, he brokered a deal that saw Sony Pictures Television acquire UK Indie 11, producers of hit Netflix series Sex Education. Mannering worked with 11 founders Jamie Campbell and Joel Wilson on the transaction for more than 12 months. And while Sony president of international production Wayne Garvey suggested it wrapped his company's UK investment ambitions for the time being, Mannering told me it would be wrong to rule the firm out of future acquisitions. He also talked about the present M&A landscape in the face of COVID-19 and Banerjee's acquisition of Endemol Shine Group. How were things looking for you this year? And, and tell us about the deal that you've you've just completed as well, the, the sale of yeah. 11 to Sony Pictures. So, yeah, so that was, I mean, a fantastic deal. I mean, I've worked with Jamie and Joel, you know, for, for, for a year or so now on that transaction i mean they are they're a very talented duo in in terms of how they how they work and obviously they created a, a breakthrough hit in the form of sex education which is i think no mean feat given that it was an unknown writer with the exception probably of obviously obviously julian Anderson. the cast was relatively unknown and they created one of netflix's top 10 global hits and that is no mean feat and it's come back for the second season which rated even more highly and then season three has already been commissioned and on the back of that, they, they had a number of other shows at commission, one called White Stork with Netflix, another one called um, uh, Red Rose with the BBC and with Netflix. And, and that was a great launch pad. And of course, they're in, in hot demand. And so we ran a very successful auction process and ultimately sold the business to Sony, uh, which completed at the end of, end of June. Just to explain how um, you know the process went from Channel 4 taking a, a stake in the business. I believe that um, Eleven had conversations with Sony a little while ago. They opted to uh, to go with Channel Four and investment uh, from their growth fund. But then, how did that relationship with Sony evolve? And there were a number of other suitors uh, in in the bidding, I believe, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they had a conversations with Sony. Actually, it was, it was two, two, two or three years ago. Actually, it was it was after the growth fund took a, took a stake, and uh, I think opportunistically, Sony looked at the looked at the opportunity to buy out Channel Four rather than buy out any of the um, uh, the boys' equity. Uh, and then in the end, that conversation wasn't the right timing and, and that fell away. But actually, I think it worked quite well for, for the guys at 11 because, uh, you know, the business has gone from strength to strength and the valuation they achieved in the recent deal and the recent deal structure is, is by many miles better than the previous deal that we're looking at doing. And yeah, there was, it was a competitive auction process. You can imagine that in the current market with uh, the SBOL platforms being very strong, uh, particularly their plans have been accelerated by the, um, by the pandemic. You know, that is the place to focus your business on and with the business like 11 which has a hit show 
and both the guys are young and ambitious, that was an attractive proposition for, for a number of suitors. What's the state of the market like at the moment? These conversations were obviously taking place before the pandemic hit. How has the uh, environment in which we're now operating changed those conversations? That's a fair question. I mean, from what I've seen, what has happened through the pandemic is it's really sort of accelerated a, a phenomenon that we're already seeing. So I think with the the SFODs, their business plans and the growth strategies have been accelerated by two plus years, I would say. You only have to look at the Netflix results. I mean, they've added 26 million subscribers in the first half of this year versus 12 the previous year. And for the, for the second month running, their cash flow positive, And they generated in the quarter 1.5 billion of EBITDA and you know, 900 million, I think, or 800 million of, of free cash flow. So their businesses are extremely strong. And they are, in, you know, despite the fact that the lockdown and the sort of production hiatus, the underlying fundamentals, if you're positioned with a Netflix or a streamer or uh, other business in that area, that those production companies are performing very well. Uh, and that is, is a sort of, uh, I think, an opposite case. If you are exposed to some of the advertiser-funded broadcasters like Channel 4 or ITV, your business is under pressure because their revenues are declining, they're reducing spend, they're following their drama team and, and non-script team, and, that, and that, is, um, uh, that is more challenging for them. So I think those producers that are, are focused with the SVODs and with the other subscription channels and, and, and cable channels are in a strong position and are in, in very high demand. So I don't see any let up in M&A for those businesses because most of those businesses have come through this pandemic relatively unscathed. And so I think they will continue to be you know, strong demand for those companies. What about the impact of the production hiatus, however? Because obviously plenty of Netflix series and series across the board, particularly in the scripted space, have been put on hold and drama will be, by the looks of it, the last of the, uh, the genres to return to action. Yeah, yeah, it has. I mean, there has been a production hiatus for, you know, if you look at something like sexual education, it was due to go into production in May, it's now going to production in, in August. So that is a three month delay. Uh, and that is not ideal. But in, in effect, the demand for those shows isn't going to dry up. Netflix are not going to you know, are going to stop commissioning their shows, so everything has been shifted back by three months. So I think the long term health and profitability of of those particular companies in the long term is is really unaffected. This year we'll see you know the results maybe not as strong as they would have been otherwise. But I think overall the results for next year and subsequent years will be as strong as they've ever been. That's a bull's uh, perspective on things, presumably uh, those that are perhaps concerned about a second wave, for example, the ability for productions to get back up and running again might have longer term concerns about uh, that happening and and how long can the industry seriously withstand and, and the valuations of companies withstand a pause on production yeah i mean it's a fair question if you look at obviously people saying well there's, there's further protocols it's more expense in the production i think it again depends on the broadcaster i think some of the SVODs and netflix is an example have been very good at increasing budgets to cover for extra costs of various pandemics. And I think for those shows that are going into production, you know, late latter part of this summer will be done and completed by Christmas and they'll be out in the marketplace. Again, you know, who knows whether there'll be a further shutdown in January and February, but, but generally speaking, uh, you know, although some dramas are shot at that time and shot indoors in studios, lots of the external dramas aren't, are filmed largely over the summer months where when it's drier. So I, I, I do think it is relatively manageable. And if, if Netflix has, has now got $900 million of money it didn't expect to have, and it's got you know another 26 million subscribers, what's it going to be doing with money? It's going to be, going to be commissioning shows, and there will be a way to make those shows happen, and people will observe protocols and make them happen. But I, I do think the underlying health of the sector you know, is, is actually very strong. But it, it is a, it is, there's a shift in focus from, uh, you know, from a, <clears throat> a producer's perspective 
you need to be focusing more on relationships with the escort platforms and moving away from the advertiser funded broadcasters because that is where the money is flowing. What about the um, sort of changing appetites among investors for different kinds of production companies, whether those are more focused on the scripted space or, or unscripted? Yeah, again, I think I think this follows um, where the sort of the commission is going. I think the areas that there will be in high demand and, and you know, both from, from SPOD commissioning and from the M&A perspective are those that are in the high-end areas, and that is high-end drama and high-end factual. I think those will be the most in-demand areas, uh, in my view. I think to, to break through uh, in an audience, in, in an environment where there's more and more programming, it has to be the best programming out there to, to catch eyeballs because there is so much to watch. Uh, and that means premium, I think, in my view. Sony, with this deal, um, according to, to Wayne Garvey, has sort of rounded out its investments as far as the UK is concerned anyway. You've worked with a number of production companies over the years, all three media, ITV studios. You, you've engineered or helped facilitate uh, sales of, of production companies to those entities, Discovery as well. Uh, Sky Studios, if Sony's no longer a, a kind of active player or as active as it as it has been in recent years, who who are now? I wouldn't rule Sony out. I mean, if you look at the terms of majority acquisitions, uh, Eleven is the first deal they've done since they bought the majority stake in, in Left Bank in 2012. So uh, they've made a number of minority investments in, in, in lots of different companies, including Whisper most recently, but they haven't bought a majority stake since 2012. So, And that's eight years ago. So there were never prolific uh, sort of acquirers of businesses or majority stakes in businesses in, in that way. But yeah, the companies we see are continuing to be active are all the normal players. So you see all three media, you see Sky. I think you'll see more of Endemol Shine. And uh, obviously, they're now owned by Banerjee. Now their deal's completed, rounding out their portfolio, particularly in the UK, where they're probably weaker than some of their European territories. Uh, I think you'll continue to see BBC Worldwide or BBC Studios, ITV continue to be active, Fremantle. So I think there are, there are quite a few suitors out there in the marketplace. And you think those appetites haven't changed in any way? I mean, ITV went through prior to uh, to the current CEO a, a whole string of acquisitions to, to build up ITV Studios to, to what it is today. And you were involved again in a number of those transactions. But given the challenges that they're facing on the broadcasting side of their business, uh, do you not see a, a sort of a let up or a pause in their acquisitions and investments activities? Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> You're right, ITV are probably um, going to be more conservative than m and approach than they have been in the past because you're right, that they've got challenges elsewhere in the business. But, but that's a, the bit of the business that is um, doing well for them is the studios business, the production business. An acquisition like Mammoth has worked very well for them, uh, the deal I did in 2015. And more and more they're commissioning in-house. And Mammoth has a number of shows in-house with ITV. So I think that part of the business has been very successful for them. So I think where they see opportunities, they will continue to be acquisitive. But, yeah, clearly they'll be more, um, I think, conservative in how they approach it. But if, if advertising revenues are falling, and that is a, a general trend rather than, um, you know, just a sort of one-off this year, then they have to continue to build their production business to um, to grow the business. You referenced Banerjee Endemol there, obviously one of the, the biggest transactions that we've seen in uh, across the international TV mm-hmm. business in, in recent years. How transformative is that deal, do you think, for, for the industry? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they are, you know, they, they claim to be the biggest in the world now. So clearly it is a, um, you know, a huge transaction in, in the marketplace. Interestingly, I think it probably has more of an impact in some of the territories outside the UK. Uh, Endemol is a very big business in the UK, but Banerjee wasn't, wasn't 
as big as some of the others in, operating in the UK marketplace. I think there will be a period of, you know, probably 12 plus months of integrating, of working it through, of deciding who are going to be the senior people in each of those business areas. And I think that will need to work its way through. But I mean, if you look at their, their presence in the UK, RDF is the core UK business they, they bought and own uh, in the UK. But I probably think if you look at their portfolio versus others, you know, drama is not an area that they are strongest in. So that may be an area that they look at in the future. And there, and there clearly may be other areas as well that they look to complement that, um, that portfolio. There were some suggestions. I mean, they closed the financing for it, uh, I think, around about the end of last year. But uh, there were some suggestions that as the pandemic hit, they were there was a bit of wriggling going on and, and questions raised as to whether they wanted to actually go through and complete in these circumstances. Did you uh, get any sense of that at all? Yeah, I heard the rumours like you did. I mean, you know, if anyone's making a, a huge transaction, a two billion euro transaction, and, and borrowing a lot of money to do so, uh, you know, clearly the price pre-pandemic is going to be different from the price post-pandemic. So you can understand, uh, you know, why those rumours would have happened. But I understand the deal was done at the time back in the autumn last year. It was um, it was a deal done, you know, without condition, and they had to complete the deal. So. Um, you know, clearly there, there was no possibility to, to renegotiate the prices, I understand it. What about pre-pandemic, post-pandemic prices now for production companies and the, the sorts of valuations that they can expect to achieve? Yeah, I think it comes back to, to the split in the marketplace. If you're with the growing part of the market, the SVOP platforms, I think prices are, are as strong, if not stronger. If, if your business is, is in an area where, unfortunately, profits are declining, clearly you know, the valuation is going to be affected. And in terms of the volume of deals that you would have expected to be closing prior to the pandemic in, in a year uh, versus the situation that we're in now, do you, is there a sort of change in pace? Um, I, I don't think we've been com- completely unscathed in it. I, I think in terms of launching a process, there were some processes we thought about launching, you know, which we planned on launching in, in around April time, which we've delayed a couple of months uh, as the pandemic has sort of passed through and become less severe. But I think in terms of the number of deals we'll close this year, I, I think it would broadly the same as what we would have expected. Uh, and maybe we're slightly fortunate in, in terms of the companies we're working with and the, and the strength of those businesses, and they have been relatively unscathed. But yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that across the marketplace, you know, that there will be an impact and some of these deals will be delayed. You referenced the Netflix subscriber numbers obviously being dramatically boosted uh, in the first half of this year, but their projections for the for the quarter moving forwards did disappoint some investors and their stock price seemed to fall as a result. The competition in the in the marketplace among uh, streamers is is one aspect to this, but I guess also a sort of fear that uh, as lockdown eases and uh, audiences uh, begin to sort of stray away from their screens, they find other things to do. I mean, what are the sort of the longer term trends that you you see there? Yeah, I, I saw that announcement from Netflix, and that they were being. I thought they were being overly conservative um, in terms of the fact that they were presuming that. All the subscriber growth they got in the first two quarters was simply an acceleration of what would happen later in the in the year. My view is slightly different. I think their subscribers will be stickier, and the the move to sort of home working will become more entrenched, and people will spend more time at home, and therefore you know they will have more time to watch viewers. And so I think their their forecasts, in my view, are a bit conservative. But naturally, they want to sort of constrain market expectations given the strength of the two quarters they've had. 
Uh, and if you look at the market, I mean, my view is in Netflix is in, in a pretty strong position, obviously has first mover advantage, has nearly 200 million subscribers, and it, it is the platform to beat, I think, at the moment. You know, there are lots of other platforms out there with infinite resources. You have Amazon, which is real strategy is, is to be the world's number one retailer, and therefore the broadcasting arm effectively is, is an adjunct to that. Uh, and the same with Apple. Apple is, is, is commissioning shows to drive sales of its, um, its technology. So they're not, they're not pure plays in quite the same way. So clearly there will be greater competition, but I have to think that Netflix is in a pretty strong position. I mean, in one of the items in its release, it said that uh, its requirement to um, seek third-party financing was diminishing. Uh, everyone was concerned that they're going to run out of money. But if anything, this pandemic has proved that actually they're much closer to break even than anyone anticipated. And some of the other deals that you've um, completed recently as well. Tell us a little bit about those STV productions as well, uh, uh, buying out Two Cities Television. Yeah, so um, Two Cities is, is um, a business that did um, Patrick Melrose uh, starting Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, and they were invested by BBC and one of the, a number of portfolio companies in the drama space that, that are owned by BBC Studios. And they'd, they'd got to the end of end of that um, sort of first phase of investment and, and realised actually where they were focusing on particular nations and regions drama, there was possibly a, a better suitor for them. And you know, to be in a, to be a, a sort of company in a smaller group rather than being one of a number of um, sort of mouths that, that were looking to be fed. And we worked with them and um, actually found the perfect suitor in STV, which was looking to build its um, its regional drama aspirations and with two cities having a base in in um in northern ireland in belfast that pretty pretty well and obviously stv had success with a number of its regional dramas uh and it was a pretty good fit uh and uh two cities have a very strong um, development slate focus on the nations and regions and uh and it was pretty good so they stepped in and took out um bbc studios and and are funding the business going forward anything you can tell us about that you've got coming up not really, unfortunately. That's the that's the uh, the challenge of it, the sector I work in. But yeah, certainly we we uh, we haven't been uh, twiddling our thumbs during the uh, the lockdown. How's the whole situation affected you on an operational basis, though? I mean, to carry out, for example, due diligence, that's obviously a, a core part of doing these transactions. How, on an operational uh, level, how have how have things changed? Yeah, it's a good question. It's been remarkably seamless, to be honest with you. The the one thing in selling a business which has been slightly different, of course, is that generally the the buyer and seller will get to meet, uh, at, you know, physically face to face at least once, possibly you know, a number of times before a deal is closed. Uh, obviously, in the eleven transaction, you know, they met multiple times before the deal. We got into that sort of lockdown phase, so that wasn't an issue. And generally speaking, most of the companies we've sold have met the buyers beforehand, so they're not meeting them for the first time. Although, you know, the whole process of, of, of meeting a, a buyer now is done via zoom calls rather than face to face so uh, it is slightly different from that perspective certainly i think that's the one key difference the rest of it to be honest with you the diligence you know the process the negotiation is largely unaffected because everything had gone online already so there was always online data rooms and it was 10 years ago where you had a physical data room that people went in and had a look at now it's all online so it's it's been pretty seamless to be honest with you from that perspective sony as you say don't rule them out from from making further investments um at a, at a uh, corporate level they've obviously just uh, in another part of their business invested 250 million dollars in epic games the uh, creators of Fortnite. i just wondered if you had any thoughts about that transaction and uh, what it says about the trajectory i guess in, in which entertainment is heading yeah i mean i think if you were looking at the sort of two of the areas which have benefited um inadvertently from from the lockdown it has been SVOD platforms and, and the gaming sector. Uh, again, just from personal experience, I just look at my seven-year-old um, son and nine-year-old daughter and 
during the lockdown, it was difficult to go outside. So from dawn till dusk, you know, unfortunately, it was difficult to get them off the computer playing computer games, whether it be Minecraft or anything else. So I, I do see the trends in, in young kids in, the, in terms of their spare time. They, they play computer games, they watch YouTube, they don't tend to watch scheduled TV. And I think that is, a, that is something that's here to stay and has probably been accelerated by the pandemic. And so, um, you know, games producers like Epix, which obviously uh, created uh, Fortnite, I think are in a strong position. And, you know, as, as shifting uh, consumer spend and, and time goes on to gaming, those businesses are clearly in, in, a, uh, in a slipstream. Tom Mannering from Helium Partners. US broadcast network The CW is a joint venture between Warner Media and Viacom CBS. The channel, known in recent years for series including Arrow, The Flash, Jane the Virgin and Riverdale, has always been a keen acquirer of programming, but accelerated these efforts earlier this year as the COVID-19 crisis hit production, and it took the decision to postpone new series releases till January 2021. The CW has in recent months snapped up shows including CBC drama Coroner, Sky Financial Thriller Devils and UK TV comedy competition format Taskmaster. Kevin Levy, Executive Vice President of Programme Planning, Scheduling and Acquisitions, spoke with Inigo Alexander about the strategy and the kinds of shows the network is still seeking. Well, acquisitions has always been an important part of our strategy for the last several years, but when faced with the pandemic, we had to get more aggressive with our efforts to identify programming and secure that programming and certainly um, you know, find programs that were on brand for the CW that we could fit into our schedule uh, in such a way to help us bridge the gap while we're waiting for our uh, other productions to be able to resume. What we did was we, we made a decision early, fairly early on to push our uh, season launches to January of 21 and decided to try to fill out our schedule with, with opportunistic acquisitions that could help us in the third and fourth quarter. And when you mention opportunistic acquisitions there, what, what does that entail? What sort of content would take the boxes for you to consider? The things we're looking for are things that uh, we would consider on brand with the CW, things that feel contemporary, feel relevant, certainly English language programming, diverse programming is a priority for us as well. Anything with connective tissue to uh, what people are used to seeing on the CW. You know, for example, a show that we've had on the last several years, Burden of Truth, stars Kristen Kruk, who was the lead actress on Smallville. So she's certainly someone that uh, our audience is familiar with and identifies as being part of the CW family. Having a familiar face like that makes it easy to integrate that program into our schedule. And then when we were looking for shows for, for this calendar year, a show like Devils that has Patrick Dempsey as the lead is an, another great piece of content for us. Uh, someone that American audiences are familiar with, a great storyline, uh, compelling. And we just tried to find things that, that we feel fit and, and are on brand with, uh, with what we're doing. In what other ways has the pandemic changed your sort of your long-term acquisitions approach? I think what we found is that it's it's a good thing to have programming and inventory. Uh, we you know, when the pandemic first hit, we found ourselves scrambling a little bit to understand how much programming would be able to be produced and delivered 
uh, you know, what we would have, when we would have it. So it's very important to be able to have a stocked inventory of shows that are ready to go. You know, so I think it's it's better it's better for us to have more than less is is a lesson that that we've learned. You know, it's also as other networks start diving into this, we felt it was important that we got a head start on everything so that you know we got first crack at projects uh, before uh, our competitors would be able to to come in. So being aggressive, has been, a, has been a good thing. We've already, over the past several years, we've already established relationships with production companies, with uh, distributors, with agents, talent, so that when we needed to really step on the gas and start uh, acquiring aggressively, we had the infrastructure in place to do that. And how do you keep that head start going forward? I mean, have you... Have you acted in a certain way to try and ensure that you can try and remain ahead of other competitors in the networks? I think what we do is we we put the word out there that we are looking, that we are uh, a great home for, for international products. We could point to the success we've had with uh, shows like Bulletproof, um, with a show like Penn and Teller Fool Us, which was originally uh, a UK production that we then turned into uh, an, an American production. So we we have a, a strong ability to integrate these shows with our regular schedule. It increases the value of these assets for the stakeholders. And, you know, we, we incorporate these shows just as if they were homegrown. Uh, and I think our partners have really appreciated that and found that that it's been good for us. It's been good for them and success breeds success. So, uh, you know, as, as we continue to make deals, you know, they're always looking for the next one and we're always looking for the next one. And you guys now have a couple of shows returning to production as well. Um, the Outpost and Pandora, if I'm not mistaken. We did. So the Outpost has been up in production for about a month. Uh, they are uh, filming in Serbia. They worked very closely with the Serbian government. Uh, there's a uh, production company based in Belgrade called uh, Balkanic Media uh, that put together a very comprehensive uh, set of safety protocols. And, you know, the most important thing to us is the health and safety of the cast and crew and the entire production. We don't want to rush anything. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that everybody was perfectly comfortable with, with the, with the safety protocols that were put in place and they were able to resume production. And we've already begun seeing, uh, the fruits of that in terms of episodes being delivered. Uh, Pandora similarly is in, is right now is in pre-production and they expect to begin filming later this month. And was the outpost always shot in Serbia or was that a decision to, as a result of the pandemic? They began shooting in Serbia with season two. So currently they're in season three. Season one was shot a mixture in, in Ireland and in the United States. Uh, they moved over to Serbia. It had nothing to do with, with the pandemic. It was, it was at least a year prior to that. And in terms of the pre-production of Pandora, that's obviously slightly different to having a show in uh, production. How has that been changed by the pandemic? It's roughly the same. They, you know, they did. Uh, they had all the uh, writing done. They 
actually had done a lot of work pre-pandemic in terms of location scouting, having sets built, all of that. So right now it's just a matter of them getting up and running. Do you have any other projects that will be returning to production soon? Uh, no, right now th those are our only international productions. Uh, other than the, the the Canadian shows, which we're you know we're still awaiting on uh, approvals from the government and all all the guidelines to resume production on, on the Canadian shows. In terms of production going forward, um, some of the people I've spoken to based in the States and based in Canada, they've said that production in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, is starting to look a bit more appealing now that uh, lockdown is lifting. Is that something that you're considering as well? Uh, I think wherever a producer could uh, establish a, a safe environment where uh, it's, it's in accordance with whatever health and safety protocols are, are necessary to do production, we, we would be open to exploring. Right now, uh, we're really, in terms of the short term, I think uh, Outpost and Pandora uh, and our other CBS and Warner Brothers produced shows are, are the only things that we have on, on our uh, immediate calendar. And in terms of content that you might like to acquire uh, slightly further down the line past these past the summer months? I think we're always looking uh, for acquisitions. So uh, wherever they come from, we've, we've certainly had success in finding things from, from Canada, from the UK. We, we looked at Australia, certainly any number of other places that have things that uh, have had either no or, or limited exposure in the United States. Uh, if we feel it's on brand, uh, we are happy to, to take a look at it. Our, our demo, our primary demo is 18 to 49. Uh, we have a, a good balance uh, in terms of uh, male-female skew. Uh, the shows that we've been successful with uh, have had broad appeal. They are show, we, we've had great success with genre programming, be it superhero or supernatural. Most of our shows feel like they have some sort of heightened element to it. Uh, where uh, there are still grounded human romantic relationships, but they are heightened in a way that the, the, the stakes feel, uh, feel big. We are definitely looking for diverse content. Uh, it's very important to us as a network to find uh, voices that are underrepresented, either in front of the camera or behind the camera. Uh, we like our shows to reflect the audience and, you know, the world that we live in. So um, those are things that we're certainly actively looking for. Kevin Levy from The CW. Chicago-based writer, director and producer Patrick Wimp is the creator of web series Brothers from the Suburbs, which was presented for the first time at Series Fest in Denver, Colorado last year. This year, he was back at the virtual version of the event in June as an alumni, taking part in discussions about the part TV can play in a worldwide civil rights push and Hollywood's reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement. He spoke with Nico Franks. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. And you attended the virtual edition of uh, Series Fest, a Denver event in June, and um, you were involved in, in a number of different ways. One way was you were on the panel uh, Amplify Inclusion through independent series and obviously you were there with your series uh, brothers from the suburbs uh, which deals with growing up in a predominantly white high school 
as a mixed race kid. Tell me a bit about that series and then also, yeah, the panel and what some of the main takeaways were. Our series was kind of back as an alumni this year. Uh, last year, we, we premiered, actually, I premiered the web series at Series Fest. Uh, I won a, a Best Direction Award for the web series category. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of about the, um, you know, the, the kind of trials and tribulations of three awkward black teenagers growing up in an, an affluent, predominantly white high school and environment. And really kind of the core of it is just about like, you know, I, I, I posit that, um, you know, adolescence is extremely awkward for everyone. Uh, it's very difficult and challenging for everyone. So how do, how do those, you know, strange coming of age experiences get exacerbated by, you know, looking different or, you know, having people perceive you as different, those, those cultural differences and, and what happens there. And, you know, I really just wanted to explore, you know, some of these ideas of, of microaggressions, right, and of race relations or racism, prejudice and, and things like that that are, are experienced on kind of a smaller, like everyday type of level, right? Obviously the, you know, the, the big dramatic and, and violent and traumatic stuff is, is key to that type of discussion. But, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of an everyday element that a lot of us deal with and go through. And it's not always, you know, some of the things that are, are predominantly portrayed in media. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. And also through what I would like to call like the, the healing lens of comedy, right? Like, you know, comedy can be really pointed in terms of looking at society, I feel like, and, you know, the, the laugh kind of makes it a little bit easier going down, but it also enables you to say some things a little bit more directly, I think, than, um, you know, you could in, in just coming out with, with the heavier drama or something like that. And the panel you were on, so Amplify Inclusion Through Independent yep. Series, obviously that was taking place at a time that, you know, is continuing um, against the backdrop of the continued Black Lives Matter protests. So how, how did that frame the discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that really made creating that panel or promoting that panel, moving that panel forward, uh, you know, this this kind of worldwide civil rights push that's going on. I think it made it a really big priority for Series Fest. And, you know, for, for myself and some of the other creators I was on there with who are, you know, all really renowned and, and amazing people, um, I think there was a couple of things going on. It was like, one, you know, you had... Um, you know, I, I believe someone who had a show on there in like 2018 or 2017, you know, you had you had several years of, of these you know series that were exploring some of these issues that like, you know, I guess now like looking at it in hindsight, you know, the, they're the things that are front and center right on the world stage right now. And and it's like, you know, like a person was saying this three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, and, you know, nothing has been done until it, it kind of bubbled over uh, into the current place that we're at. So I think it was really interesting to look at it in that context. Um, I think it was, you know, and it, it, it is, it remains a, a powerful vehicle as storytellers and content creators, as creative people, as filmmakers, to really be able to create emotional experiences that help people understand uh, different walks of life. Right? I think that um, movies and television are really powerful in that way. And you can create a degree of identification with a person that is, you know, completely quote unquote, unlike you or, or you know, not like you in, in the ways you would expect. Um, that creates some really deeper understanding. And I, and I think that, you know, that that kind of 
cliched phrase of like taking a walk in someone's shoes is, you know, no better exemplified than, you know, experiencing a, a story alongside a person or a character. And you mentioned, yeah, uh, a lot of the the microaggressions people of color face every day being a big part of your series, Brothers from the Suburbs. And obviously that's looking at it from a high school perspective. But then what we're seeing and is being made abundantly clear is that that carries on, you know, into adult life and into society. And so it would follow that, you know, that exists in Hollywood as well. And yeah, I'm wondering in terms of how you're hopeful of seeing Hollywood react and um, continue to you know react to the Black Lives Matters movement what have you made of the reaction so far and and what do you hope for it to be in the future I mean I feel like um, it's been pretty proactive um, especially on on a number of, of the the studios and networks uh, you know you've seen people seemingly try to take concrete action in whether it's, you know, promoting people of color to executive levels, whether it's, you know, signing new artists, like musically, and then, you know, in terms of shows and movies and things like that. So I think, and I hope that, uh, you know, you, you actually started to see in recent years, maybe the past three, four or five years, a lot more um, kind of creative freedom being given to um, creators of color, where people were telling stories that were kind of uniquely their own, that might not have previously been greenlit. And you saw those things make money, right? You know, whether it's um, like Jordan Peele stuff or some of the things that Donald Glover's been doing, you know, you're, you're starting, you were starting to see, you know, networks and studios really see that like, hey, empowering these voices is, it's a thing that can be beneficial to us, you know, both from a, a socially conscious perspective and, you know, a business perspective as it is business. Uh, so I hope to see more of that, right? I hope to see that trend grow. And it, it certainly seems like steps are being taken in that way. But, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things where does it last longer than the moment, right? Like, does, does is it something that, you know, this seeming mandate that, that might be there in a, in a bunch of places, you know, does that continue, you know, for the next decade or however long, you know, to, to make that the norm? That, that would be my hope. How are you finding the pandemic uh, affecting your work? And um, over the past few weeks, have you noticed a change, a shift in terms of, you know, now shooting is potentially going to be able to start? in the near future and in some cases is starting in, in lots of places. Um, how is that affecting what you do? I mean, obviously, initially, right, like the, the plug was pulled on everything. And production is, uh, I mean, a fairly unique animal in that it, it is built on the congregation of, you know, bigger groups of people. You know, I've, I've gone out and, and done a couple commercial shoots now and, and things are starting to open up a little bit. But, you know, I found the whole steps toward reopening uh, a little bit confusing and murky um, because obviously like state to state, it's different. And, you know, there's the kind of official, you know, governmental stance, right, or public health stance of here's what you can do, um, but that doesn't necessarily speak to the risks that individuals are willing to take or not willing to take. So that's, you know, that's that's something that's kind of evolving. You know, I've I've seen a few things. There was a good article about shifting the way that people are writing things, right? Like if you're writing a new thing, you know, if we can't film it, don't write it was kind of one of the quotes that that went in there. So, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Hopefully, you know, we, we find some way to to resume, you know, at least a middle tier of the level of production that, that we need to, to to tell some stories because we certainly don't want like Zoom movies for the next three years or, or something like that. Um, you know, you could probably get away with the um, 
smaller traditional indie drama, right? Like the kind of two people talking in an apartment type of movie, you know, is that going to satisfy like the superhero crowd? Probably not. But, you know, I think there's, there's ways to kind of get there and, you know, hopefully, you know, it's, it's the creative challenge, right? Like solve this thing creatively, figure out how to, how to do it and, you know, make something that's entertaining within the given constraints. Writer, director and producer Patrick Wimp. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.